This talk was given by Vanessa Zuise Goddard Sensei. Zuise Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of her talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation to find out more about her teachings or to join her mailing list, please visit her website at vanessazuisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. I'd like to tell you the story of a man named Adolf Kaminsky. Kaminsky was a, an Argentinian Jew who um, was raised in Paris and at the age of 18 became part of a, a resistance cell during World War II. And he became a forger. He had apprenticed as a, a clothes dyer, so the precursor of, of dry cleaning. And he had learned from his boss, who was a chemical engineer, you know, about removing stains and things like that. And so in 1943, he and his family were arrested and sent to Drancy, an internment camp in, in Paris. And it was the last stop before the concentration camps. But the Argentinian government protested their arrest, and eventually they were freed. And yet during those three months that he was in the camp, he saw many people, thousands of people who were sent to their deaths. And he never forgot it. And so when they went back to Paris, his father arranged to get them, the whole family, false papers so that they could stay in, in Paris with a different identity. And when Kaminsky went to pick them up at the age of 18, uh, the resistance fighters told him they were having trouble because they, couldn't, they weren't able to remove some uh, blue stains uh, blue ink from the new documents, and so Kaminsky suggested that they use lactic acid, which he had learned about. And when it worked, they asked him to, to join the resistance. And so for the next three years, he forged thousands of passports. Um, the next 30 years, I'm sorry, uh, for people embroiled in conflicts all over the world. Then, you know, in, in, in Paris, but later Algeria, Vietnam, the U.S. And at one point during the World War II, he stayed up for two nights straight, uh, preparing uh, a rush order for, for Jews who were escaping the Nazis. And he said, you know, it's a very simple calculation. In one hour, I could make 30 documents. So if I slept for an hour, 30 people would likely die. And, you know, he didn't do this for money. There wasn't any. He didn't do it for glory, since no one, including later his wife and his children, could know what he was doing. He certainly didn't do it for pleasure. He said, one mistake, and you could send someone to their death. And so I was asking myself, you know, why? Why was he moved to act in such a way when there are so many of us who witness or hear about deaths like this, Syria, for example, um, our own country in, in, a, in a different way, right? uh, obviously, but our country now, and we're able to go on with our lives largely in an ordinary way. Why did he step out of his own uh, comfort, certainly, his security, in order to do this, mostly for people he did not know? And this is what he said recently, because he's, he's still alive, he's 91, he lives in Paris. 
in an apartment for low-income families, and he very close to his old uh, laboratory where he worked. And he said, I saved lives because I can't deal with unnecessary deaths. I just can't. All humans are equal, whatever their origins, their beliefs, their skin color. There are no superiors, no inferiors. That is not acceptable for me. There are no superiors, no inferiors. That is not acceptable for me. Such a world. I've been speaking about the four immeasurables, the heavenly or divine abodes of loving kindness and compassion, sympathetic joy and equanimity. And this morning I wanted to speak about compassion, karuna, the, the first of the four immeasurables, loving kindness, is the wish that all beings experience happiness and well-being. Karuna is the wish that all beings be freed from suffering and the source of suffering. And karuna is also made up of those actions that lead to such a result. But there is more to compassion, and that is the understanding that others' pain is my pain. Others' suffering is my suffering. And Kaminsky says that all beings are equal. Buddhism says that all beings are interdependent, which means we're more than equal. We are, in fact, one and the same. Avalokiteshvara, Kanon, who's standing at the back of the Zendos, uh, uh, often depicted with many thousand hands, and eyes. It's a little unfortunate because the statues look a little bit like a lobster, but um, but the the image, what it's intended is is a, a compassionate being that has innumerable hands and eyes to respond to the cries of the world, which is what Ayavalokiteshvara means. And Shantideva. So this, this interdependent Shantideva, who was a, an 8th century Indian monk and scholar, said it in this way. Strive at first to meditate upon the sameness of yourself and others. In joy and sorrow, all are equal. Thus be a guardian of all as of yourself. In joy and sorrow, all are equal. And this is the basic premise, not just of Buddhism, you know, it's a a statement of our founding fathers. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, with certain unalienable rights, among them life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We all want to be happy, fundamentally. I don't think there's anyone who would say, no, I don't want to be happy. We all want to be free, and certainly we want to be alive. And yet, it is an, unargu- an unarguable truth that not all of us are. And when we come into training, you know, we do so because we're in pain. Or at the very least, because things aren't quite right. And we'd like to set them right. Usually, we're not thinking about others. So it could be daunting. It could be daunting to hear these teachings. One of the first things you hear, you know, your first day of training, basically, you hear the four bodhisattva vows. 
The desires are numberless and you're vowing to put an end to them. Sentient beings are, are numberless. You vow to save them. You know, the, 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 the dharmas that are boundless and the Buddha way that is unattainable, they, they seem impossible, these, these vows, and you're vowing to fulfill them in some way. And I think we don't really know what we're saying when we say it, because if we did, maybe we would run in the other direction, if we really could take it in. I remember, in fact, somebody who became a student some years ago who said that the first time she heard them, she did, in fact, leave and didn't come back for a couple of years. She didn't think she could make those vows, save all sentient beings, and I can barely deal with myself. In one way, she was very honest. I mean, she came back eventually, but to really uh, take in that that is what we're saying, that's why they're boundless, that's why they are immeasurable, as these four immeasurables are. This is Shantideva again. Suffering has no possessor. Therefore, no distinctions can be made in it. Since pain is pain, it is to be dispelled. What use is there in drawing boundaries? What use is there in drawing boundaries when there, where there aren't any? But our world is made of boundaries. So how is this possible? How is this a true teaching? A teaching that compassion is based on, essentially. Because from the perspective of the self, from my perspective, let's say, doing something for you takes, might take something from me. My time, which could be used perhaps for something more pleasurable. My energy, my attention, my resources... From the perspective of compassion, which is empty of self-nature, pain is pain, and it needs to be alleviated. So it doesn't matter whether it's yours or mine. In fact, Shantideva is basically saying it's pointless to make a distinction, since that's not how things are. And I've come to feel that this is, in fact, the heart of the path. I used to think, you know, I would come into practice and I would work really hard and conquer myself. I thought I would cultivate a mind that was bright and luminous, that was sharp, you know, like a laser, that was piercing. And now I feel that the best I can do is to actually live my life in such a way that I'll be kind, that I'll be a loving human being without boundaries, truly, not just in the abstract. I mean, the, the Dalai Lama said that, I believe. You know, my religion is kindness. And it could seem, I mean, we could look at our world and wonder, I mean, is that really enough? How, how, how's that possible? How, how's that going to help? How's that going to change anything? You know, for a culture that va- values self uh, Possession, right? My, my partner used to call me Mr. Spock. And I thought that that was a good thing. I saw that as a good thing. <laughs> um, I did, in fact, 
think it was a good thing for a long time because the the realm of feeling was uh, frightening, you know, it was uncertain, it was vulnerable, tumultuous at times, often, in fact. It was human. And uh, for a long time, longer than I care to admit, but uh, I'll admit it, um, it, I was afraid. I was afraid of that, the, the, the intimacy, the closeness that Buddhism is predicated on. The fact that you and I are, in fact, the same thing. And I sort of got that teaching intellectually. I thought, yes, you know, and, and on occasion I would see that the self is empty and I would get these visceral glimpses. And I would even have, you know, as the, sometimes the sutras um, describe, you know, these feelings of you know, great love for everyone. But then I would finish the meditation retreat and then I would be faced with a human being in front of me. And then there was a different story. And so I was afraid. Sometimes I still am. But I'll be damned if I'm going to let that stop me. Because I feel that that's... that, that um, acknowledging the full human being is the only way to be a true person, as Zen calls it. It's, it's actually kind of useless to have great piercing wisdom if you cannot relate to another human being. In these past two weeks, you know, the, the Nobel Prizes were announced. And I was reflecting again on the incredible, the incredible achievements you know, we've, we've had, made as, as, as human beings. Um, you know, just the, the discovery, you know, these self-eating cells and these superconductors and these molecular machines. I mean, I, the, uh, somebody sent me an article that they've discovered there's millions more galaxies in the world, in the universe, than we previously knew. And so I, I, I often think, you know, our, our knowledge is ever more broad. It's ever deeper. And still, still we kind of get along with one another. Still, we're killing each other, you know, based on our gender, our skin color, our nationality, our religion, based on inferior and superior, very much so. And the, the heartbreaking um, circumstance of, the, of, of this is that, as Kaminsky said, it is utterly, utterly unnecessary. I mean, that is uh, exactly what Buddhism is saying. This is heartbreaking and is not necessary. But if this is not our nature, if the nature of our mind is bright and open and luminous, if our nature is awakened nature, then why? 2,500 years Buddhism has been on the face of this earth. Many other religious traditions whose... um, at least profess teachings, are love and compassion. Why can we stop hurting one another? And, you know, by killing, I mean all kinds of killing, certainly physical death. But any, anything in that range from physical death to, you know, erasability, 
ignoring someone else or, or actively erasing someone. You know, like that, that Facebook um, post that went out a couple of days ago, Dr. Cross, the woman on the Detroit plane who was not just ignored, she was actively erased because she didn't fit another's description, physical description of a doctor. She wasn't white and she wasn't a man. At the same time, the gravest kind of killing is the taking of a human life. And I remember the first time I heard my teacher say that, um, that the weight of such an act is not just that greatest of thefts, but also the, the robbing of that person's opportunity to awaken, to realize their Buddha nature. So it's a double killing. You're killing the person and you're killing their opportunity to see that they are a Buddha. And so why, if what we all want is to not suffer, all beings, without exception, pretty much, I think we can comfortably, confidently say, want this, then why do we inflict suffering on ourselves and others? Someone recommended to me a a kid's book it's called Not a Box, and it's a, a rabbit who's sitting, seemingly, in a box. And an invisible adult is asking, why are you sitting in a box? And the rabbit says, it's not a box. And then the, the book goes through all the things that the box is. It's a spaceship, and it's a sailboat, and it's a balloon, and it's a fort. And, you know, I mean, we've seen kids do this all the time. But the rabbit knows she can turn the box into anything she wants because it's not a box. Kid's book. And this is profound dharma. Because each of us is sitting in a box. In a box that is labeled me. And the thing about this box is it's actually quite flimsy. And we know that. We can feel that. Which means we have to shore it up. And we'll do it you know, in any way that we can really. We'll dress it up, we'll camouflage it so it doesn't call attention to itself. We'll reinforce it with titles, with muscles, with weapons, houses, things. But because it's a box, it has boundaries. Very clear, well-defined boundaries. So my pain is very clearly mine, and it's inside this box. And your pain is very clearly yours, and it's in your box. It has nothing to do with me. Unless, of course, you cross my boundary, which I don't like. I don't like at all. And if I can, I'll make you pay for it. And Shantideva says, we've gotten used to this box. We think. We think it keeps us safe. He says, through strong habituation, I came to have in its regard a sense of I, though in itself it is devoid of entity. And so why not identify another's body, calling it my I? And vice versa, why should it be hard to think of this, my body, as another's? You see what he's doing? It's this... 
he's questioning at a very fundamental level, what do I mean really by I? What is this I? Through habit, I identify this as I. And he's saying, well, why not identify another's body as I? Why not expand the box? Why not blow it up altogether? Does this seem impractical? Absurd? Not exactly compelling what I would like to do? But we could think about it this way. I mean, if this current experiment of seeing me as me and you as you had worked, it would have worked already. We have gotten this far, but not very happily and certainly not peacefully. And often, often those of us who have some relative level of peace do so at the expense of another what we call privilege. You know, in, in my case, the privilege that comes from the color of my skin and the opportunity, the opportunity that it's afforded me. In one sense, I mean, it's my privilege to be able to be sitting here speaking about compassion, to sit and study my mind, my actions, Because, you know, in general, I don't have to live with one foot on the terrain of hope and the other on the ground of fear. As um, Chris Lebron uh, wrote an op-ed piece, he's a professor at um, philosophy and African-American studies at Yale. And that that line really um, pierced me. One foot on the terrain of hope and the other on the ground of fear. I, in general, don't experience that. I experience it perhaps to the extent that I'm a woman, maybe different than a man would experience it, but not, not like he's describing. And in general, I'm not afraid that if I walk out the door, I'm going to be killed. I'm not, in general, uh, expecting that I will be denied an opportunity to live my life just because of the way I look. And... You know, recently I've become aware, painfully aware, that when I, when I say to you, you know, that the practice of compassion is one of the four immeasurables, is to wish for myself, for those I love, for all beings, for those I don't love, people I dislike, people I may have true aversion for. That, I, that, I, that we wish, that I wish them, that they be free of, of suffering and the root of suffering. That the we I speak of may not be the we that you experience. We, the people, is not all people, not yet. So my opportunity may very well be your setback. My blindness often contributes to your suffering directly. And this isn't, um, this isn't a guilt trip. I actually find that guilt is um, perhaps the most unnecessary 
human emotion. Um, because I, I feel, and this is just my personal opinion, but I feel that guilt gives you the sense that you're doing something about what needs to be done or that you're not doing. Um, but it, it doesn't move forward. It just gives you that sense. It, isn't, it, it is not a guilt trip at all. It's um, an admission, perhaps, an acknowledgement that, that the self-evident truth that our ancestors uh, propose is not actually self-evident. Not, not in our country and not in our world. And why do I even bring this up? Because I don't think that these, the, uh, we can vow to save all beings and only mean some beings. I don't think that is what I mean. I don't think that is sustainable. I don't think that is a sustainable... Um, aspiration or a sustainable practice. And so while loving kindness is obstructed by self-exclusivity, compassion is obstructed by indifference, by a lack of interest or concern, a lack of sympathy. But I think most importantly, compassion is obstructed by a lack of understanding, understanding of the way things actually are, understanding why I should be interested or concerned in the first place. And that there is, um, in a sense, a place and a time, you know, so we come, we enter into practice, and that we are very much uh, focused here, the, the suffering that is, that is right in front of my mind, my eyes. And that is, that is right, that is true, in a sense, that is natural. But that at a certain point, that needs to expand. We need to at least enlarge the box. If we're really going to do this, if we're really going to do what we say. You know, to be able to, to uh, acknowledge those ways in which my thoughts uh, or my actions or my words uh, do in fact hinder you, your freedom, your life. You know, I mean, I don't want to be racist. I don't want to be homophobic. I don't want to be um, prejudiced against the disabled, for example, or the elderly. But I am. You know, very often, out of ignorance, I am. Out of habit, out of blindness, just out of sheer blindness. I mean, that is what delusion is. And yet I have a practice. I have the, the incredible, incredibly great fortune to have found my way to a path of awakening, a path of enlightenment, a path that, that shines light in all of these dark corners. A path that is the way out of such self-inflicted and other-inflicted suffering. Shantideva says, compassion is natural because you are my hands, my heart, my kidneys. You are like a part of my body. And I am part of yours. And so the hand doesn't profit from the foot. You know, the kidney doesn't take from the heart. 
they work in harmony. And so this larger body doesn't need to either. But sitting safely in my box, I have, I have very little, if any, connection to you. I mean, I can't see you, right? There's, there's cardboard blocking my view. I can't feel you. I can't feel my connection to you. That's why we have to get rid of the box. I really, I don't see another way. If there was an easier way, I, I would take it. I don't see another way except to fully realize and embody the, 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 the empty, selfless nature of this self that I protect so strongly, so fiercely. I read about a, a talk recently that one of the former abbots of the San Francisco Zen Center gave. And um, it was a man that he called the turtle man because he came regularly and sold them uh, those chocolate turtles. And he was blind. And, you know, how many of these, these stories feature blind, blind people, blind men, blind women? In, in indigenous lore, there's many stories of the seer who's the blind person. So this is a different blindness from the blindness of confusion or of ignorance. And so this, this turtle man would do his rounds selling his candy, and he would stand at every street corner and just stop and yell, help, help, and wait until somebody came over and helped him to cross the street. And imagine that for a moment. Imagine such vulnerability. Imagine that willingness and that trust to have someone else take care of your life in that moment. And, and this teacher said of, of him, you know, it was like he was, he was like a miracle. He defied gravity. He defied common sense and conventionality. I mean, he was almost like a, like a superhero. You know, he's, he's, that's how he described him. So it was a thrill, you know, when he appeared. He defied conventionality. He was willing to ask for help and wait until he received it. He was willing to let himself be saved by other beings and save them in that very act. And I wonder, you know, was the world hostile to the turtle man? Did he perceive it as a hostile world? Maybe. But that didn't stop him from going out every day. In every corner stopping and just letting the world come to him. And I would venture to say that most likely for him, the world was a different world. <clears throat> the words of, of this teacher was a world where there was help being received and help being given. And in such a world, this compelling, determined world, according to me, lost some of its urgency and desperation. And that's it. That's it. As long as we live in the world according to me, true compassion can't be realized, let alone manifested. As long as we believe that the measure of my happiness can in any way exclude yours, we will never be truly happy or at peace. And it doesn't have to be dramatic, doesn't have to be Kaminsky, 
you know, saving thousands of lives. Because each of us, as uh, we've been studying Genja Koan, you know, Master Dogen, when the need is small, the, the, how you meet it, you meet it in a small way. And when the need is large, you meet it in a large way. And each of us will have our own path and we'll have our own, we have our own strengths, we have our own inclinations. I think it, 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 um, the, the basis of it is something a lot um, more simple and fundamental. And it is that, that, something I speak of often, that true seeing of the one before me. For who they are, with their difference. And also with a, with a keen, clear understanding that they are me. You know, I believe we have exhausted conventionality. What, what seems or passes for common sense. You know, certainly in the world of, of business or politics, you know, where uh, truths, uh, where lies you know, have, have become truths, and, or you never quite know, you know the line between the two, or the measure of someone's capacity as their bluster. I think we've exhausted conventionality in education, you know, where we largely, largely are taught to conform. Or we taught histories of the world, not as the world really is, but as the world from the perspective of a small, powerful few wanted to be. I think we've exhausted common sense in our relationships, you know, with one another. Because we're, we're mostly, mostly um, victims, you know, of just our, our deep-seated fear. Fear of what we don't know, fear of what is, uh, what I can lose. And so I'm afraid, and then you're afraid, and it just goes on endlessly. And so common sense has been beating its head against the wall for, for centuries, millennia. And all throughout the, the history of, of humanity, religions have sprung up out of the simple fact, that, that simple acknowledgement that common sense has its limits. Common sense would have us stay in the box. And I really do feel that we're going to, to have to dig deeper to truly manifest these, these bodhisattva vows that we chant every day. Those desiring speedily to be a refuge for themselves and others should make the interchange of, interchange of I and other and thus embrace a sacred mystery. This is the sacred mystery that we are in the midst of right now. Even those of you who just walked through the door this morning for the first time, you know, please don't think that you're, you're, while you're doing zazen, you're just quieting your mind. You're building concentration. You're relieving a little bit of your pain. You are doing all of those things, and that's good. But think of this more like a, 
revolution, the silent revolution at first. And it starts very small with this thing I call me on this mat, a sort of box, but which by necessity has to gain voice and traction and, and scope, as I said earlier, until it, it keeps growing, until it does, hopefully, hopefully encompass everyone. It does, in effect, in, in effect whether we see that or not is, is, is the difference. It does encompass everyone. But until that's how we experience the world, regardless of our origins, our beliefs, our age, or skin color, until there is a world of no superior or inferior. And if this seems unattainable, know that Buddhism is not um, content with just putting a Band-Aid over the scar. It's meant to go to the very heart, the very root of the problem. And if all of this feels risky and uncomfortable, unsettling, know that it, it should. It should. You know, the box is small, but it's kind of cozy. Being out of it is scary. You're kind of exposed. It's kind of uncertain. But as long as we choose certainty over kindness and clarity and justice, this great body made up of seven and a half billion people, probably trillions of other beings of this great earth, will continue to hurt, will continue to be in conflict. And it doesn't have to. Each, each one of us, actually, because... It, this isn't, again, doesn't have to be big and overwhelming. Each one of us can decide that the suffering stops here, here, with me. With this one cell that depends on all these other cells to fully perform its function. So wishing that I and you and everyone be free of suffering and know the root of suffering. And not just wishing, but living, living that wish we do become a refuge for ourselves and others. This is the opportunity that we've been given this morning and every morning that we practice. Actually, every morning that we're alive. This is the gift, small or large, as the need is small or large, that we can offer, that we can offer this world. For more talks, to get information about Zuise Sensei's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessazuisegoddard.org.